Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome everybody back to the show. Today I'm super excited because we're going to be exploring a, you know, overview of things you need to know about baby sleep. And my guest today is Julia. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I, in reflecting back on our conversations, I'm like, man, I wish I knew you when my kid was a baby, <laughs> like some of the stuff that, you know, you think, you know, and what you hear is just like all over the place. And so I'm really excited to be making this information available to new parents because like, it's hard with a newborn. Yeah, for sure. Me too. This is my mission. I didn't have this information when I became a parent either. And I just really want to get it out there so that people know what to expect and have some tools to help them get through the challenging times. Yeah. So maybe let's start off with like, yeah, tell us a little bit more about you. Like you already kind of hinted how you got into sleep education, but maybe you can expand a little. Sure. So my name is Julia Legman, and I'm the owner of In Touch Sleep Education. Um, I have a now four-year-old, almost five-year-old. And when we got into sleep with her, the first few months, I really just followed my instincts. And I did a lot of skin to skin, and I helped her sleep. And, you know, things were pretty good. And then we hit that first regression, which I didn't really know anything about. So, of course, I did the typical, like, Googling and looking for books and trying to figure out what to do because she just cried all the time for anything that was associated with sleep. So if we wanted to put a sleep sack on, she would cry. If we walked toward her bedroom where her crib is, she would cry. So just a lot of separation anxiety and not wanting to be left alone to sleep. And so I sort of thought, well, she's crying anyways. I guess maybe I should just put her down and let her cry in the crib. Like what's the difference? She's crying if I'm holding her anyways. Um, And so I sort of had read some books and started trying some sleep training techniques. And I realized later, after much angst and frustration and tears on everybody's part, that she really just was a non-responder. She was too sensitive for an approach like that because she would just keep crying. She was not a kid that responded well to it. Um, And really what I try and offer to parents is an alternative to sleep training because some parents don't want to do it. Some parents don't feel like it's the right choice for their family, um, and they're just looking for other options. And so I definitely understand why parents do sleep train, because I was there and I've done it. Um, And sometimes without the right information, we might think that sleep is actually a trainable skill. 
And now, since doing my cert certification as an infant sleep educator, I really understand that sleep is not a skill. <laughs> it's a biological function. It's like digestion and elimination. And it improves with time and it improves with support, but it's really not something that we can teach our kids. And so I like to help parents, you know, sort of take away some of that angst of trying to teach their kid to sleep and helping them actually understand the various phases that they'll go through with their babies. There are expected milestones in sleep. And if we have a better understanding of when those happen and what to expect um, and how to sort of navigate those ups and downs, we can have a better experience. For everybody involved, right? Mm -hmm. For baby too, because it's, you know, they can sense our stress mm -hmm. centered around the whole thing. And so it's not just us being stressed, it's them being stressed. And yeah, it can make for a, you know, quote unquote, unpleasant um, experience. And I, I, I just remember with my daughter, you know, kind of like saying, everybody learns how to sleep. Everybody learns how to sleep. I just like, <laughs> you know, I just kept saying to myself, like, I know this is really hard right now, but the reality is we all sleep, right? Yeah. I mean, unless you have a, you know, medical condition or, mm -hmm. or, or, or something, but like, let's just say, generally speaking, everybody gets to sleep. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there are some families who will choose to do some sleep training and for them, it doesn't end up being a stressful event. Their child is not stressed by it. It's a temperament thing, perhaps. Um, they are not stressed by it. It's very short lived and they carry on and then they don't understand perhaps why other people don't sleep train. And so there, there ends up being this us and them camp in the sleep world, which I don't really like because I, I understand why people sleep train and I understand why people don't sleep train. So, um, you know, I just personally now offer options for people who are looking for that gentle approach. Um, but I understand why some people do it and, and why it works for some families. Yeah, that's a really great point about what works for one person may not work for another person. And like, that is the whole point of this podcast is like living a better life is about showing you options, right? Mm -hmm. and, and providing you information for you to be able to begin to explore so that you can figure out what works best for you. Right. So that's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> okay, so... Let's let's talk a little bit about like sleep arrangements, right? Because we we get this newborn and sort of the idea is that you put them in a crib and like that's where they're going to sleep. Uh, and there are other options available that people may not necessarily think of or know. And then, of course, there's like some safety considerations that, you know, should be considered. Can we chat mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So in in Canada, the public agent, public health agency of Canada recommends that babies room share with their parents for parent or caregiver for at least the first six months of life. Um, and that is preventative against SIDS. Now, it's not only in Canada that that's, that's recommended in the U.S. and other governing bodies. It really is kind of a general recommendation um, to room share for at least six months. And some people will do it up to a year to even maximize 
the safety more. Uh, but those first six months are crucial because really that's the time when sudden infant death syndrome is the most prominent. And so being near the baby in the same room allows you to be responsive. Um, parents sleep more lightly, which is problematic for parents <laughs> because they don't get as deep a sleep, but it really does keep their baby the safest. And so that's the number one consideration is, can you have an arrangement so that your baby sleeps in your room? Now, for a lot of families, they don't have a ton of space in their room. So they may choose to use a bassinet or something quite small. And if they can have it right beside the bed, there's a lot of bedside ones that are really nice. They maybe could have four sides on them or be sort of an oval shape, or they could have one side off of them um, and it could sort of be butted up against the bed. So some type of bedside bassinet is a great option. Uh, something like a mini crib is a great option too. You can actually get smaller than standard size cribs. And I didn't know that. I probably would have exercised an option like that, but I didn't know. Um, there obviously are standard size cribs. And so if maybe you start in a bassinet and then your baby grows out of it, but you still want to keep them in your room to get to that six month point, because I don't know many babies who can stay in a bassinet to six months because they start rolling and moving and they're bigger than the bassinet and the whole bit. So um, if you can get a standard size crib in your room, that works as well. Um, but, you know, there are other options so that the safest place for a baby is on their back in your room for the first six months in their own separate sleep space. So in that bassinet or in that crib. Now, the problem with this advice is that it scares parents about bed sharing. And so, the, you know, sort of says, this is where your baby needs to sleep. But what happens is often the baby won't sleep there. And then parents think, okay, well, I'm not going to bed chair because that's dangerous. So I'm going to just stay up holding them on the chair, or I'm going to lay down on the couch with them, or I am going to pull them into bed because I'm exhausted, whatever it is, but they don't have the information to do it safely or more safely, as safely as possible. So really bed sharing is practiced all around the world and in places where the SIDS rate are really low and they bed share, it's because bed sharing is kind of bare bones, very simple. There's not like a lot of fluffy bedding, beds are low to the ground, like all these things that make bed sharing safer because the bed sharing is simpler. So the reason that I like to share about a bit about this is because the vast majority of parents are going to have a baby in their bed at some point, even if they're not a bed sharing family, there just might be a bad night where baby won't settle and you pull baby into your bed, or you think that maybe you'll do the couch or the chair instead. So the best advice around that is to never sleep on a chair, a rocker or a couch with your baby ever, um, just because it's not a flat surface. And with you falling asleep, they could, you know, end up falling down into cracks or fall off onto the floor, whatever it might be. So those are really to be avoided. 
And then with the bed sharing piece, if your baby's going to end up in your bed, I recommend following the Safe Sleep 7 guidelines from the Leche League. And these are pretty standard um, recommendations that will help you to sort of minimize some of those risks. And so they are to not have any smoking inside or outside your home. And that's pretty standard recommendation, even for solo sleep, because smoking in the household is a huge contributor to SIDS. And actually, when smoking rates started to go down in recent decades, SIDS has also gone down as well. And also because we place babies on their back. So no smoking is huge. Um, when your bed sharing, there's that exhalation, which they call third hand smoke. And so if you are a smoker and you're laying beside a baby, your baby is breathing in that third hand smoke from you. So that one's really to be avoided. Number two of the safe sleep seven is to make sure that the bed sharing parent or parents are sober. So no alcohol or any medications that it would, would make it difficult for them to arouse. The idea is that if your baby is in your bed, you want to be alert. Number three is a nursing mother um, or chest feeding parent um, day and night. And the reason for that is to not, it's not to discriminate against um, non breastfeeding parents. It's because the baby will stay close to the breasts or chest in that case. They don't migrate down into the covers or up into the pillows or off towards the edge of the bed. So the fact that there's a nursing relationship keeps the baby closer to the nursing parent who would be in a C cuddle curl position. So they would have their knees up uh, underneath the baby and their arm up above the baby and the baby is sort of protected in that C-shaped position. So number three is to have that nursing relationship. If that is not possible, then a, sleep, a separate sleep surface is the best option. Um, and one thing that can be done for that, so we talked about the bedside bassinet. You can also do a, what's called a sidecar crib. And so if your baby's bigger, but you can't have them in your bed and you really want to have that separate sleep surface, but they're fussy and they need to be close to you. And you just, you're trying to figure out an option that's going to work with some middle ground. You can take the third, the, the fourth rail off uh, a crib and have sort of a three-sided crib. So you take one long side off and then you butt the crib up against the adult bed, making sure that the beds are at the same level and that there's no gap in between them. So you can pack any crack that there might be with something like a pool noodle or just really ensuring that they're very close together and at the same level. And so you have the three sides of the crib that prevent baby from falling out, but that fourth side being off allows you to care for them from the adult bed. So that's an option for families who can't maybe do the, the nursing bed sharing option. Um, so back to the safe sleep seven, number four is a healthy baby full term. So if you're going to have your baby in your bed, they do need to be full term because premature babies just don't have the lung development, the, the body development. We know that they're vulnerable and that they're smaller. And so they should be in their own sleep space as much as possible. Um, Number five is to have baby on their back. And this again, much like smoking, these two things um, have been the hugest 
to reduce the numbers of sudden infant death syndrome. So no smoking and always placing baby on their back. And it's funny because babies sleep very deeply and seem to like sleeping on their front. But the problem with that is that we want our babies to sleep lightly. We want them to develop their arousal mechanism and to be able to wake themselves up from a deep sleep. And so um, it's, you know, again, one of those things that's a bit problematic for parents because, you know, they, they want their baby to sleep deeply and, and for a long time, but it's just not safe, especially in the early months. So you always place baby on their back. Once they're old enough to roll, that's fine. They will roll and they may begin sleeping on their tummy and, and it's safe for them to do so once they're able to roll, but you always place baby on their back to sleep. So that's number five. Number six is to not have your baby dressed too warmly if they're sleeping in your bed. So no swaddling or anything that's going to cause them to overheat because your body heat is going to contribute to the overall heat for them. Um, and number seven of the safe sleep seven is a safe surface. So very important to make sure that the bed is ideally low to the ground. So you can take the box spring off, put the mattress right on the floor. You can have it in the middle of the room away from walls and cords and, you know, any potential hazards. Just make sure that the bed is firm and that there are no extra pillows or bedding or things like that. Um, and so just really having that nice, firm, flat surface is the best that you can do when you're going to pull your, your baby into your bed. So, you know, again, the, the safest place is for the baby to be on their back in their own sleep space in your room for the first six months. But when that's not possible, these are really good options. And for some families, just from a socioeconomic standpoint, having baby in a different space is just sometimes not an option. Sometimes bed sharing is just the way that it goes. And so it's important to at least have some information to try and make it safer because chaotic and unplanned bed sharing are very risky. So if you have multiple kids in the bed and a lot of bedding and it was just unplanned and a partner maybe doesn't know that the baby's in the bed, like all of those things make it more dangerous and it doesn't have to be, it can be more safe. And so keeping the safe sleep seven in mind is really helpful. So if people want to look it up. Um, the, the La Leche League has some great um, graphics on it, some infographics. So you can check that it's La Leche League and it's called the safe sleep seven. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. That I think is like very helpful to know your options and like based on those options, what is the safest way to proceed? Mm -hmm. And, you know, sleep environment is always changing. So it's not like you're going to have the nursery with the crib and baby's always going to be in there. That is so rare. It's usually like musical sleeping arrangements. As your child is in different phases and stages, they'll be in different places, you'll be in different places, and you know, you go with it. So have some flexibility, have some options, and uh, it'll just make it easier for everybody, for sure. Absolutely. What, um, what are a few red flags parents should look out for with baby sleep? So, you know, we expect some ups and downs with baby sleep, and that's pretty normal. But if your baby sleep has been really difficult since birth and has not improved, 
or if um, their sleep was okay and then something happened and it stayed really poor, they've been very, very wakeful for say over two months, then you know that there's some kind of underlying issue that could be going on. Because typically when babies go through a developmental milestone, like they're learning to walk or they're learning to cruise or whatever it is, um, it does disrupt their sleep, but it's temporary. It's usually between a few days to a few weeks. And so if you're having sleep challenges that are lasting longer than that, it's probably not related to their development. It's probably more related to their health. So things to look for, uh, the big one is mouth breathing. So if your baby is sleeping with their mouth open, you definitely want to take them to your physician because um, mouth breathing can be a sign of a tongue or lip tie, which is when the frenulum, the tissue on the top lip or um, the tongue that attaches the tongue to the bottom of the mouth, if that is too tight, um, there can be a lot of issues. So mouth breathing could be a sign of that, or it could be a sign maybe that they're having some other breathing difficulties. So like they might have enlarged adenoids or tonsils or something that's preventing them from breathing properly. So really watch for the mouth breathing because ideally all humans will breathe through their nose while they're sleeping. Um, you also want to watch for, um, just things like your baby being really uncomfortable or gassy because there are periods where babies are uncomfortable and gassy, but if that doesn't seem to pass, like if, if it doesn't seem just associated with their development of their digestive system and it gets a bit better with time, if it seems to be ongoing, you might be looking at something like a food sensitivity or a digestive issue. And then again, you need to talk to your physician um, and they may even refer you on to somebody like a nutritionist or a dietitian, and you could do um, perhaps I mean, if they're, if they're nursing or formula feeding, they would look at those intake sources first. And then if the baby was on solids, they would look at maybe an elimination diet to figure out if there's certain foods that are bothering baby. Um, another thing that you can watch for in your baby is if your body, your, sorry, your baby really favors one side or the other, like their neck seems kinked to one side, or they like to roll to one side or lay on one side, or they seem really uncomfortable when you try to put them on that safe back position, that can be just a either overall body tension or what we call torticollis. And torticollis is a, a tension around the neck, perhaps one side of the neck. And that can happen if baby was in a particular position in utero or even just during the birth they ended up with some tension that, you know, causes them to favor that one side or feel uncomfortable when they're sleeping. So often something like a chiropractor could help with the torticollis or body tension um, or a physiotherapist or a massage therapist. So, you know, you can always talk to your doctor first if you're unsure and they can refer you to these people. Or if you know someone who specializes in infants, you might be able to go see them directly. So watch for that body discomfort. And then the last thing that we watch for is sort of restlessness in the body. So if your baby just isn't able to settle, they have 
sort of that restless leg type of thing going on. They're really wakeful and hard to settle. It could be that they have low iron. And so it can be helpful. And this one's often overlooked. And sometimes even physicians are resistant to test for it. But sometimes when they do a blood test, they can find that your baby's uh, iron is low. And then with a bit of iron supplementation, their sleep actually improves, of course, with other things going along with iron, they also improve as well. Um, so you just want to watch out for some of these things. Uh, there's also a possibility that your baby could have gas or reflux associated with either the, the food issues or reflux can be just because of the development of the structures, you know, that are not quite able to hold the food down yet. Um, so again, you want to speak to either in that case, a lactation consultant, if you're looking at a reflux problem, because sometimes it could be that they're getting too much milk too fast or too much air. And then those things end up causing a problem with sleep down the road. So the problem with some of these red flag things that we talk about is that we think that there's a problem with sleep, but the sleep problem is just a symptom of an underlying problem. And if we try and fix sleep, it's still going to be a problem because the underlying issue hasn't been fixed. And this is the one time when sleep training can be very problematic because if we have a baby who's not sleeping well and we push them to be independent and we leave them alone or we let them cry, but there's something else that's bothering them, it's not going to improve. And they're going to just feel even worse about sleep. So they're going to resist it more. And what you really want to be doing is just, giving them an opportunity to get help for whatever is underlying and then sleep naturally will improve. So I encourage parents to remember that there's sleep, but then there's the general health as well that you need to be watching for. Thank you. That like, it's just so helpful. Why aren't we like taught this? Um, right? it, would just, it would just be so much easier to be like, oh, okay, so let's go down the list. One, two, three, four. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. oh man. Yeah, okay. exactly. And that's why I created my course, the Safe and Sound Infant Sleep course. I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but that's why I created it because I wanted something that was a bit more proactive and preventative because as parents, we get into all these situations and then we're Googling and we're asking people and we're reading books and some of this stuff we find out after our kids are older, but it would be really helpful to learn this stuff beforehand or as you're in it. And so my online course is self-paced for parents. It's not very long. The modules are like five to 10 minutes each, and it allows parents to learn all the basics that they need for the first two years in that sort of preventative, proactive approach. Oh my God. Like, thank goodness for you. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so we talked a little bit about food and mm -hmm. so I just want to kind of briefly touch upon like, is what we're feeding, like the baby going to impact their sleep. And I'm thinking more like formula versus breastfeeding. Like, does that change things? Right. Cause mm -hmm. I wouldn't know mm -hmm. either yeah. way. Yeah. And there usually it, it becomes a bit of a thing because if a baby's not sleeping well or they're sleeping like a baby, which means they're waking a few times a night 
and parents are trying to get more sleep, they think, well, you know, if this is a breastfed baby, maybe if I feed them formula, they'll sleep longer. Or maybe if I put some cereal in, if they're already a formula fed baby, if I put some baby cereal into their bottle, maybe they'll sleep longer. And the truth with all of that is that they don't sleep longer. So (laughs) babies wake for hunger and that's one reason they wake, but it's not the only reason they wake. And there are studies that show that breastfed babies and formula fed babies or formula even and cereal fed babies, you know, they are waking up a similar amount. So even though we do know that breast milk digests more quickly, it does 60 to 90 minutes and it's digested. Um, You might get an extra 30 minutes um, for the digestion time on formula. So we would think logically that that would make our baby sleep longer, but hunger is just one of the reasons that they wake. And so because they wake for connection with their caregiver, for comfort, if they're cold, if they're warm, if they've peed in their diaper, like so many reasons that they wake and then they just need help going back to sleep. Changing the food source is not a major factor in how long they're going to sleep. And it's often disappointing for parents because they go through the trouble of making a change in the food source, thinking that it's going to be a night and day difference. And it's not. So if you need to make a food source change because you need to make that change for nutrition, fine, right? But I I wouldn't recommend doing it in the hopes that you'll get more sleep because it just typically doesn't work out that way. Okay. That's, that's a great thing to know. Right. Because again, right. The frustration is like, oh, but I read and I did this and it, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just a good thing to know. I want to talk now about the sleep regression thing, Mm -hmm. right? Because I, you know, like I have clients, they'll come in and they'll be like, oh, my baby's at four months and we're in the sleep regression. Um, What is that? (laughs) So sleep regressions are when, sleep is affected by a developmental milestone. So baby is going through a change of some kind, is learning some new skill, and it's affecting their sleep. Sometimes it makes them more wakeful at night. Sometimes it makes them resist falling to sleep. They don't sort of relax and give in to sleep. Uh, Sometimes they wake up earlier in the morning. Just overall, it's disruptive to sleep because their brain activity is so much quicker. There's just so much going on and their brain is consolidating what they've been learning during the day. So sometimes if a baby is learning to pull up to standing or is learning to crawl, you might even see in the night that they wake up and they start practicing that. They're like in their crib or in the bed and they're like crawling around or trying to stand up or if they're learning to talk, they're saying all the new words they learned. That was my favorite knot (laughs) when my daughter started learning to talk. It was super cute, but I'm like, can you practice these words during the daytime, (laughs) not at night? So, I mean, that really is the key is that if your baby is going through one of these regressions, you really want to be giving them extra daytime practice of whatever skills they're learning, because that will make things shorter. This regression and its effect on sleep should be shorter if they master the skill more quickly. So extra crawling time, extra cruising time, extra walking practice, talky, talky, talk during the day, like whatever it is that's going to help your baby um, 
sort of consolidate that skill better. So when we expect the sleep regressions are around specific times where we would expect those milestones. Now, they don't happen exactly at the same time for every baby. And some babies smooth over some regression times better than others. So it depends on their temperament or how quickly they master these skills. But when we expect them, I'll just give you an overview of when we would expect these tricky times, because I think it's helpful for parents if they know that there's going to be a tricky time for a couple of weeks, they can sort of get through it. Because the problem that I had when I hit the first one is I just thought, oh, my, my baby doesn't know how to sleep. I need to teach her how to sleep now because it can't be like this forever. We're never going to get out of this. But if you understand that there's these ups and downs and that there's specific times where there's going to be sleep regressions and after the sleep regression, there's actually typically a sweet spot where your baby is more calm and easygoing. It's easier to support them and get through the regression time if you know that on the other side, things are going to go a little bit more smoothly. So the first sort of unofficial regression is actually on the second night after birth. And that's because baby cluster feeds typically all through the night. The mother's milk is just coming in and that cluster feeding of feeding, 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 feeding all night is really to establish the mother's milk supply. So it's exhausting, but it's typically the one night. And then, you know, the milk supply starts to come in and then obviously establishes over a longer period of time. But that really intenseness is that second night and parents go, what did I sign up for? (laughs) So you just got to get through that night. Um, And then, you know, fairly smooth sailing until four to five months where they sort of come out of that third trimester, we call it, which is the the um or sorry the fourth trimester it's the um the first trimester where they're outside the womb right so you have three trimesters of pregnancy and then like this fourth one (laughs) is when the baby is out in the real world and so they are becoming more aware of their surroundings so in that first three months of life they can typically sleep anywhere on the go in the car you know in a stroller in somebody's arms and they're fairly easygoing. And then they hit that four to five month one and they become more aware of their surroundings. They might resist sleep. They might need a quiet space. Um, They might need more help falling asleep. And that typically happens around four to five months. And then around nine months, it can really be anywhere between eight and 10 months, but we sort of average it out at nine months. There's another regression where Babies are developing socially quite a bit, and they're also crawling and cruising and really on the move physically. So that one can be a doozy for people as well, because the sleep is interrupted while they're learning those skills. So lots of daytime practice is really helpful. And then 12 months is when we expect the next one. Um, This one, it depends on when a baby learns to walk, because if they learn to walk around 12 months, you can expect a regression then. If they learn to walk a little bit later, you can expect it a little later. Um, Here in Canada, because we have the one-year maternity leave, oftentimes families are experiencing a regression here, but it's more related to what's happening in life. So there might be a transition to daycare because a parent is going back to work or a transition to another caregiver. And so that can cause some disruption with sleep as they're, you know, reconnecting with their caregiver at night. Sometimes they 
they wake up more because they want to see the parent who was gone all day and have that connection time. So that can be a short term, you know, challenging time there as well. 18 months is when they go through an increase in separation anxiety. And there's a lot of social and linguistic development. That's when they start doing all the blabbering at night, all the new words. Very cute, but, you know, it's happening at night. So that's at 18 months. And then 24 months, you know, your baby's becoming more independent. They want to do more things um, on their own. It's me do it, me do it, that kind of thing. And so their brain is just on fire because they're learning so much and they're becoming so independent. Um, and some families move their kid to, say, their own toddler bed at age two. Some keep them in, in a crib or another sleeping arrangement longer. But um, if families move at that time, there might be a little disruption then as well. So night two, four months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, those are kind of the main times. And then really there can be ongoing tricky times, which we can't predict when they would be because they're related to life events. So if a child has a new caregiver, if um, you know a parent returns to work, as we mentioned, if a sibling is born into the family, if there's a change in sleeping environment, so you move kid to their, their own bed or their own room or whatever it is, or if the family moves, um, you know, the big upheaval of the whole home and everybody moves, uh, all of those things obviously can happen at any time and those can disrupt sleep as well. So just know that they are short term and that usually sleep settles after that. So helpful to know and like to expect and then plan sort of accordingly mm -hmm. um, during, during that time. Right. I want to ask about you know, there's parental, like, like we have these, you know, we, we have these milestones and things, but then there's also like parents intuition and like, when do I follow my gut feeling with sleep? And like, when do I call in somebody to help with, with sleep training? And like, mm. you know, how do, how does a parent navigate like that piece? Mm-hmm. My advice is that you always trust your instinct. The problem is that parents aren't necessarily encouraged to tap into their instincts or really learn to listen to them early on because we think, you know, it's a blessing and a curse of being alive at this time in the world. There's a lot of information out there. Generations previous didn't have Google and stuff, right? So they just had generational generational knowledge and wisdom and they had people around to support them but they really had to dig deep and trust themselves and I think we have to get back to that because even the best consultants and books and information on the internet doesn't know your baby at all they don't know your baby and that is the most important piece when you're taking any information you have to pair it with what you know about your baby and about your family and about yourself so I just really think that it's important for parents to trust their intuition. So for example, if you feel like there's something wrong, that your baby is not sleeping the way they should, then you reach out and you get help and you pair that instinct and what you know with, you know, about your baby with the knowledge that someone else has that can support you. Or, you know, if you think there might be an underlying medical issue, you bring that up with your doctor and then you work together. But if you're not in touch with that intuition, you're either going to let it go or you might 
push and train them to, to try and sleep differently. But in fact, there might be another issue there. So it's really important to trust those instincts because you will make the right decision for your baby. And, and the other thing with sort of instinct is also because you know your baby so well and you know their temperament, um, it's helpful for parents to put themselves in their baby's shoes. So when we're really tired and we're really exhausted and we don't have much more to give, if we think, you know, what is my child experiencing right now? Are they feeling separation anxiety? Are they feeling lonely? Do I think they're feeling hungry? Do I think they're uncomfortable? Do I think they have like a gut ache? You know, what is it that I think they're feeling? And really trying to empathize with that allows us to make decisions that, you know, can't go wrong, essentially, because if we put ourselves in their shoes and think, how would I want my caregiver to respond? We're almost always going to get it right. And if we're second guessing ourselves and thinking, but the book says to do this, or the person says to do this, we really have to trust ourselves first and then pair it with other information. Because like I said, nobody knows our baby like we do. And I think that's really sound advice because you can read all the research. And again, we have to also consider with research that, you know, research has to be ethical and, and, you know, you can't test certain things mm-hmm. to really know one way or another. Um, the, you know, the most important things, you know, and that was one of the things that I did is I kind of went through a checklist, like baby woke up. Okay. Like, are they hungry? Okay. Let's do that. Are they, you know, diaper? Okay. Let's check that. You know, do they need to cuddle? Mm-hmm. Like, let's do that. Like, is it too hot? You know, like you just right. kind of go down the checklist of all the things that you would think of that, like, what could they possibly be wanting or needing? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I, I absolutely agree with that instinct piece because, you know, uh, one time I came home and I'm looking at my daughter's eye and I'm like, something's wrong with her eye. My husband's like, no, 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 no. She's fine. And uh, Mm -hmm. so like, I went to work, I come back and like, nope, her eyes even more swollen. And I take her, you know, this was like our first kind of thing after daycare. And I take her to the doctor and it was pink eye. Right. Like I was like, this is, I was like, you know what? I should have just, I should have just listened to, you know, that instinct. Right. Right. Um, You know, thankfully it it, like the timeframe was really short, but you know, like you get these cues and like, you know, when you get that feeling of like, "Eh," Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, something isn't sitting well, like in 99% of cases, like your instinct, you're picking up cues from the environment, you know, um, that our rational brain doesn't really no, but like our nervous system is constantly scanning the environment for safety danger cues. Yeah. And so when that intuition comes, it's not like it's coming from the um, magical air. It's mm-hmm. like your nervous system is actually picking up cues that is mm-hmm. creating this unsettled feeling within our within ourselves. And that that should be like if you feel sort of unsettled that should be a cue that you, you need to go down the list of like, why am I feeling unsettled about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's there to lose really, right? If you, if you take your child in and get a second opinion on something that you have a concern about and there's nothing there, well then great. You have additional peace of mind, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you talk about having a list. One of the things that I would add to that list 
um, of, you know, we, we check their, their needs being, you know, food and diaper and hot or cold and all of those things. But we really need to remember that comfort is a valid need. And then that's on the list. And that's the one that's so hard in our society, because people think, well, baby at a certain age is now, you know, shouldn't be waking up hungry at night, so they shouldn't be waking up, period. Well, really, comfort is is that natural need and is a valid need. And if we think about ourselves in, you know, sort of evolutionary terms, when we used to be hunter-gatherer types, sleep is the most vulnerable state, and we could have been attacked by an animal while sleeping. And so, feeling safe and feeling protected and feeling comforted while we're sleeping is of the utmost importance. So if you can actually teach your child anything about sleep, it should be that sleep is a peaceful and safe place to go. And so if the decisions that you're making make you feel good, that your child feels positively about sleep, they will maintain that positive relationship with sleep into adulthood, which You know, if we look at our society, it's not very common, actually, to have a very healthy relationship with sleep. Things like insomnia and, you know, difficulties with sleep are very, very rampant. So it's quite a gift we could give our children if we can teach them that it's safe and peaceful. 100%. And, And the other piece, again, like, We have to understand that their nervous system is picking up cues from the environment that we may not necessarily um, understand. And it was only like when I started researching into, um, you know, polyvagal theory and all of that stuff um, that I came to understand that like our ears are very much in tune to hear low frequency sound because we, we were looking for predators back in the day when we didn't, you know, necessarily have these modern, you know, comforts. So even like a sound of like air conditioning kicking on Mm -hmm. can actually jolt um, or like a buzz or, um, you know, you drop something, they may hear that and think, oh my God, there's like, of course, they're not thinking through this rationally. So let's just like put aside the (laughs) rational brain thinking for a second, but their nervous system is picking up a sound and thinking, am I in danger? So if I don't feel safe and now I'm alone, I'm in the dark, I can't see, there's nobody close to me, their nervous system is not going to feel safe. Mm -hmm. They're not going to fall back asleep. Sleep is kind of counterintuitive to like a lion's going to eat me, metaphorically speaking. Yeah, it's a very vulnerable state. Yeah. So I hundred percent agree that like comfort attachment, really, really critical in creating safe pairing bonds. Mm -hmm. Because the more we can reassure our child, they will eventually not need us and will feel that sense of peace and comfort when they sleep. And sometimes when we push them to be independent, we actually see this often with toddlers and sleep, you know, we're trying to push them to go back to bed and go back to bed and go back to bed. And all they want is you. They just want some comfort. They're like clinging to you. Um, We see that, you know, there's a need there for that comfort. And the more that we can lean in and actually give them a few minutes of that comfort, then they actually feel peaceful sleeping on their own. And we're not sort of pushing their face into that 
separation. It's the time of longest separation, nighttime. It's a very long time to be separated from a caregiver. Um, and so if we can, when I work with families who have toddlers, particularly who are verbal, we focus on the connection at bedtime, not the separation. So we talk about how I dream of you and what we're going to do together in the morning and how maybe we're attached by an invisible string or I'm going to come visit you in your dreams or whatever it is. You use all these beautiful metaphors to talk about how you're connected at night instead of putting the emphasis on, no, like go to bed, stay in there, you know, <laughs> like I'm going to lock you in your room, the whole thing, right? Because it just really does reassure them and help them feel connected to us. And when babies are quite young, they connect by their senses. So that's why they need to be close to us in the same room. They need to smell us and they need to hear us. And you talk about the nervous system. So they need to be close to us. And then as they get a little bit older, they aren't necessarily connecting as much through the senses, but they are connecting emotionally. And so you still need to have those conversations about how we are connected emotionally, even when we're apart. Wow. That is, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm having my own like little connections between <laughs> research and like life just coming together in a, you know, in a light bulb. And like, this is, you know, because again, our nervous system moves through a hierarchy, right? We, we first look and seek social engagement for safety. If mm -hmm. that fails, we move into fight or flight. We ain't mm -hmm. going to sleep in fear and fight or flight. Right? right. And then if the fight or flight becomes too overwhelming and nobody's coming and it still doesn't feel safe, then we shut down completely. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's that's the piece that we want to avoid is like teaching kids to, you know, shut down their their um, feeling safe about asking for their needs to be met. Right. Totally. Yeah. And so I talked about sort of, you know, the range of experiences that people can have with sleep and with things like sleep training. And so some families might have that really easy experience that we talked about and they don't understand why other people don't do it. Um, and then some families may not actually know that their child is having a harder time than they are. So if their child cries for a couple of minutes or hours or weeks, whatever it is, and then at some point they stop crying out, um, the parents often feel relieved. And there was a, a very small study that was done on this in 2011 by Wendy Middlemiss. And it really demonstrated that, um, that babies, once they stopped crying, the parents felt better. The, the mothers in the study, their stress level went down, their cortisol level went down because their babies were quiet. And they thought, phew, my baby is asleep. Now I can relax. But when they actually tested the baby's cortisol levels, they were still high. So the babies were still in a state of stress, but they had just learned that nobody was coming. And from a biological standpoint, they have to go into shutdown. It doesn't make sense to waste energy on crying out when nobody's Nobody. coming, right? Like orphanages actually don't have a lot of crying. There's not typically the ratio of caregiver to child that would be ideal. And so there's not a lot of crying. They, they often shut down and become quite quiet babies. And then you hear about in the adoption process, parents actually trying to get their kids to signal again 
to get them to tap into those needs again and learn to cry again. So, you know, um, it's not a major fear tactic. Like we're not trying to scare anybody here. And this study that was done on these cortisol levels was a very small study on only 25 babies. So it's only a preliminary indication, but that's why parents need to tap into their own instincts about what feels right and what doesn't, because Although research can't prove definitively if there's anything positive or negative about sleep training in the long run, um, we do know for ourselves what is stressful for our babies. And we do know that toxic stress is negative for development. And we do know that attachment and responsiveness are positive for development. So as long as you feel confident as a parent that what you're doing is not putting your baby into a toxic state of stress, then generally your family's going to fare well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that's why I said, you know, with, with research and, and such, right. Like to know definitively about sleep training one way or another, again, you know, we can't really put babies and families in situations where from an ethical standpoint would do harm. Right. So, right. um, so we can't know that answer for sure. Right. But you're, but you're like, that's the piece. Like we have to tap into how it feels for us in the context of everything in our environment and all the people involved and how this is all working and then making the best decision possible from there. Um, but it starts with information, right? Like you need the information mm -hmm. to know you have options because sometimes you feel like you don't have any options, but like you have to work and you have to do things and this baby's not sleeping, you're at your wit's end. And then you mm -hmm. think you have this only one way of, of dealing with the situation. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the part that's not true. There's yeah. multiple different ways to deal with things. But again, like as a parent, when you are tired and you are stressed and you have all these things happening, right? Like it's very difficult to process through tons of Google information and read all mm -hmm. these books. Cause you need to like, you're tired. You, you sort of feel like you need a solution now. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this is why I think like beginning with information and providing um, options and understanding that there's more than one way and you're not a bad parent or your kid, you know, not necessarily the kid has this like big problem. Like you could be just going through a milestone and like, that doesn't indicate necessarily that something is wrong. But mm -hmm. if you feel like there's something internal that's like, I still feel really unsettled and this doesn't feel good, then that's mm -hmm. probably a cue that this is not the right thing or that you need to, you know, seek out help. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk about your safe and sound infant sleep course. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So like I mentioned, uh, the course is online. Um, people can start anytime they like. And it's really the course that I wish that I had when I became a parent. Um, so there are six modules in the course. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what it covers. So um, the first module talks about attachment, which we touched on a little bit today, the importance of attachment in you know, ideal optimal development. And then we talk about expectations for parenthood, because Usually we don't have quite the correct expectations for what is normal for baby sleep. And then our values. So there's a really nice values exercise in there that actually allows parents to figure out who am I as a parent? What do I actually value? Because we're just usually chasing the advice all the time. So it helps you get in touch with those instincts and those values. 
And then we go into the second module where we learn about the science of infant sleep. So I really like parents to understand what sleep cycles are and how they work and how a baby is expected to sleep at different ages. And then um, in the third module, we talk about those sleep regressions that I mentioned and the sweet spots that happen after them and how to make changes in your baby's sleep. You don't necessarily need to leave them alone to cry it out, but how can you make changes for things that aren't working for you anymore? Because often, you know, we're doing something when our baby's really young, say we're rocking them and they start to get heavier and our back starts to hurt. Well, I can't do this forever. So how am I gonna change this thing? So you can always make changes around sleep. And there's very little that we do for our babies that we would do forever because either it's not sustainable or they're gonna grow out of it or whatever. So um, we do need to make changes as we go. And so in that third module, I'm teaching parents about how and when to make changes based on the sleep progressions and the sweet spots. Um, in the uh, fourth module, we are talking about sleep training versus responsive parenting. So we're looking at the pros and cons and myths of sleep training, and then really what are the benefits of responsive parenting. Um, in the fifth module, we're talking about sleep safety. So the really important information to keep your baby safe so that you feel peaceful when your baby is sleeping, either alone or in a bed sharing situation. And also, how can you set up their environment for optimal sleep? So like, how do you set up a nursery or how do you set up a, a shared sleep space? And then the last module is on caregiver wellness. And we're really talking about how do you take care of yourself during this really difficult time? Because the, the people who need support most during this is the caregivers, right? The baby's getting their support. They're getting their support from, from the caregiver, from us. And we're usually the ones who are tapped out. So it's interesting that it's the last module because it should be the first, but nobody would take the course if it was first. So <laughs> um, it's just a really important piece to the course is, you know, taking care of yourself. So um, that's the Safe and Sound Infant Sleep course. It's available on my web website at intouchsleep.com. And you can sign up for my website there or, uh, or sorry, for the course there, or, um, you know, check out any of my other services as well. Amazing. And so that's the web, uh, that's the website. Where else can mm -hmm. people find you, follow you if they want to learn more? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Facebook at In Touch Sleep Education, and I provide lots of free baby sleep tips. So if you're looking for that, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. And, you know, if, if your family is going through a difficult time and you'd benefit from some support through a change, I can do private consultations and you can find those on my website as well at intouchsleep.com. And so, you know, we can do something as simple as a phone call if you have some questions and you just want to, you know, run some things by me and get some, get some answers, get some direction. Or if you feel like you need a bit of support, some handholding to get through some changes or some challenging times, I offer packages that include email support after a call. So we do a call, we'd put a plan in place, and then over either two or four weeks, we would email back and forth. And you can ask me questions as they come up, and we can troubleshoot and, you know, even tweak the plan if we need to together. So I love supporting families, happy to support individually or really help prepare you for the two year first two years of sleep with the safe and sound infant sleep course. 
Amazing. And we will put all of the links in the show notes for everybody. Because if you're like, wait, what was that website? Don't worry. Just go to the description of the podcast. All the contact details and the handles for social media will be there. Julia, I am so happy that you and I got connected on Instagram. Um, Such a great place to find people and like meet um, <laughs> because I think it's, I think this is super important information to talk about. And I just felt that there's like a need to share this out. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be here and to share. It's been a pleasure meeting you and your community as well. Amazing. And of course we want to thank all of our listeners who join us on a weekly basis. And if you are not subscribed to the podcast, well, that's pretty easy. We have a link on my Instagram uh, page that will take you to a page that has all the different ways you can subscribe to the podcast. This way you'll get alerted every time we release a new podcast episode. And here's the big deal. Okay. And listen carefully. I need you to share this episode with people who are expecting just given birth or have children under the age of two, please. Like just this podcast alone has such important information. You don't know what somebody might be going through because they might not be vocalizing it. So just like, hey, I thought you'd like really love to, you know, listen to this podcast on baby sleep or infant sleep. You could be changing somebody's life. So share this podcast episode out and we will connect with everybody next time on the podcast. Bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about the three different ways that you can work with pain. And then at the end, I actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience. If you would like to access this free mini training, you can go to courses.ecophysio.com dot com forward slash mini training or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode at the end of the description a link will be there for you to get the free mini training hope to connect with you there thank you for listening to living a better life podcast make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes we would also love to hear your comments suggestions and reviews thanks again until the next episode bye for now